Good afternoon and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar series. My name is Winfield Myers. I'm the director of Campus Watch and I'll be our host today. Uh, our topic today is the Islamophilia industry and our guest is Professor Richard Landis who is joining us from uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Richard, welcome. We're very happy to have you. Really appreciate you coming on today. Um, Richard is a retired professor of history at Boston University where he directed the Center for Millennial Studies and he is now a senior fellow at Bar Ilan University. Uh, he's written several books on uh, millennialism and uh, got his AB from Harvard and his PhD from, from Princeton. As I say, our topic today is uh, the Islamophilia industry on campus. Not Islamophobia, but Islamophilia industry on campus. And uh, we're going to illustrate this today uh, for our audience, uh, principally through a series of quotations that are made by Middle East Studies professors that illustrate this. But I want to get started by uh, asking Richard if you could please to give us a, a brief uh, working definition of Islamophilia. What is Islamophilia and why should we be concerned uh, about it? Well, I, I think one way to dis describe Islamophilia, which literally means love of Islam, um, and presumably this is by outsiders, not by people who are either Muslim or convert to Islam because they like it so much. Um, but this is outsiders' appreciation, admiration, respect for Islam. Uh, and in most cases, uh, we find this among people who consider themselves to be either liberals or progressives. Um, so one of the striking things about Islamophilia is that they have this love, admiration, and respect for Islam regardless of how many aspects of their own value system Islam violates, um, with its tendencies towards violence, misogyny, apartheid laws, uh, religious triumphalism, um, holy war, and so on. And uh, basically, one of the ways they deal with this is just to deny that any of these have anything to do with Islam itself, that it's either a deviation or uh, that it's Islamophobic to even point this stuff out. Um, so in other words, Islamophiles are people who, in practice, overlook everything that they dislike or even hate about Christianity, about Judaism, even though all of these features are still more pronounced in Islam. So, and, and I think you'll see this in the quotations um that you will read that there's it's like they they've lost touch with empirical reality um i think that another way of understanding islamophilia is that it's what you might call islamophobia phobia it's the fear of being called an islamophobe um peer pressure involved in this in, in departments too i mean it's enormously important for them to uh, toe the line in so many ways in this if I can, let, let me let me start on, uh, with a, uh, some uh, a couple of quotations here, and I think it will illustrate these for our audience too, uh, and then we'll get your reaction to them as, as I go through them, uh, Richard. Um, one of them comes, of course, from an article that uh, for, the, for the audience that Richard himself wrote a few years ago, uh, recounting the reactions of a University of Arkansas professor named Ted Swedenberg. He teaches Middle East studies there in the King Fod Center for Middle East studies at the University of Arkansas. Uh, and this is uh, Swedenberg recounting his experience uh, in the West Bank town of Nablus way back in 1984, which illustrates that Islamophilia is not a new phenomenon. It's not merely a post 9-11 phenomenon, for example. Um, 
he was driving in, in uh, Nablus in 1984 when a Palestinian youth ran out of a, an alley and threw a big rock into his car. And he said it shook him up and it shook the car up, as we'll see, it shook him up more than it did the car, I think. And here's one of the uh, things that uh, he, he recounted in a 1989 article, uh, again, that, that Richard has quoted. He says, my immediate thought was that I, of all people, should never have been stoned. After all, unlike those other Westerners one saw in the West Bank, the settlers, tourists, and embassy officials, I was a good foreigner working in the best interest of the Palestinians. My response was typical of a mentality I shared with other Westerners who worked as teachers, journalists, or researchers in the occupied territories and sympathized with the Palestinians. And he, he writes, so we, we good foreigners, he's, he's a good foreigner, uh, practice constant rituals of self-purification designed to guarantee that we, unlike the settlers, tourists, and diplomats, were part of the Palestinian community. We spoke Arabic, dressed modestly, no shorts, low-cut blouses, or wild haircuts, avoided tourist haunts, rarely ventured into Israel proper, and whenever possible, purchased Palestinian rather than Israeli products. We were, more, we were often more obsessive about these latter practices than our Palestinian friends. <laughs> uh, a caricature. Uh, Richard, what, what, what do you make of that and um, how that uh, sheds light on Islamophilia uh, in academe today? Well, I think one of the important things to understand is that there's nothing about Islam here. Um, he, it's, a, it's a sort of prologue to the Islamophilia that really hits after 2000, or shall we say, after 9-11. Um, what he's doing is he's siding with the Palestinians. Granted, they're Muslim, but for him, they're a liberation movement. They're not a jihad. Uh, of course, when he's there... The jihad aspect is not very prominent. Hamas isn't founded until 1988. He wrote his article the following year. But in general, the Palestinian cause was considered by scholars to be a national liberation movement. Arafat was secular and so on. So I think what you're looking at is, first of all, a prologue to Islamophilia. And in particular, you're looking at the behavior not just as scholars, but journalists as well. Um, this is true of just about every journalist I've spoken to over here, which is that they are extremely careful to be uh, uh, understanding and sympathetic. And I even met, I, it was just after the 2014, um, uh, I think it was Operation... Uh, protective edge. And there was all sorts of stuff about intimidation that came out. And I talked to this journalist who said to me, oh, you know, when I was there, there was no intimidation. They loved us. We were, they thought we were doing their work, which they were. Yeah. So the point is that this is the way to avoid hostility. And what what's the kicker here is that in order not to feel like a bunch of hypocrites, and in order not to feel like a bunch of cowards, they clothe their adherence in ideological dress rather than admit what they're doing, which is they're behaving cravenly. Exactly, exactly. Let me give another example. This is from, from the New York Times op-ed uh, in 2006, written by Noah Feldman, who is a Harvard Law professor and also a scholar of Islam, who uh, studied Islam at, uh, Islamic studies at, at Oxford University. He says, given that embracing Palestinian suicide bombing had become a widespread social norm, it would have been essentially unthinkable 
for an important Muslim scholar to condemn the practice without losing his standing among Muslims worldwide. In the Islamic world, as in the US Supreme Court, the legal authorities cannot get too far away from their public constituency without paying a price. What does that tell us? Well, I mean, you know, Noah Feldman was is a classic case of what I call liberal cognitive egocentrism, where he wants to make parallels and see them in terms of us and say we're we're basically the same. But what we're dealing with here is that the religious leaders of Islam are following the bloodlust of their their constituency, which is calling for suicide bombing against Israel by in Palestine, in Palestinian circles, up to 80 to 90 percent approval of these suicide attacks, um, and and they follow suit. And he says, well, it's just like the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court, when it gives into public opinion, tends to give into progressive public opinion. Uh, imagine if the Supreme Court were to to reinstitute the the death penalty for not even reinstitute to institute the death penalty for uh, stealing because there was a rabid movement of uh, right wingers in America who wanted to crack down on crime. Noah Feldman would not be happy. He would feel that the Supreme Court had betrayed its calling. But in order to, to make it okay for what the Muslims do, he makes this ridiculous analogy with the Supreme Court. Sure. Uh, let me uh, use one of the people we quote often at Campus Watch, Juan Coe, who is at the University of Michigan, a <laughs> history professor there. <laughs> he evokes laughter uh, from a lot of people who know him, uh, know his work. Um, this is a, 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 something he wrote back in October 2019 in reaction to news that uh, ISIS or ISIL leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi had been killed by U.S. Uh, special forces in Syria. He said, I think it, ISIL, appealed to people on the internet who were already angry and unstable, often mentally ill, and they would go out and commit violence and then would attribute it to ISIL, even though ISIL knew nothing about it. In many ways, although not with the same systemic, excuse me, systematic effect, Trump is also responsible for a certain amount of stochastic terrorism. Uh, what do we see in that kind of uh, Islamophilia? Again, you get these parallels. It's interesting when I talk to people about honor-shame culture, which is one of the driving forces in the Muslim world, and certainly in the Arab world, um, as soon as I define what honor-shame culture is, they say, back in the day, oh, that's George Bush, or later, oh, that's the Republicans. So there's a kind of me-tooism that afflicts Islamophiles, which is if you say, look, you know, they support terrorism, then Noam Chomsky will come in and say, well, we're the worst terrorists. Um, the reason I laughed with one call is that he just makes some of the most absurd statements. I think you have another one. Can you read it? You've got I another do. one. From me, one uh, <clears throat> this is from uh, his uh, recent book, 2018 book, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. Um, <laughs> this book is, uh, I'm taking this from uh, a review by uh, Ray Ibrahim in the Middle East Quarterly. Uh, a couple of quotes from it. The Quran allows warfare only in self-defense. The Quran gives Lockean grounds for warfare. That may be my favorite. Uh, John Locke, 17th century English philosopher, uh, preceded by the Quran. Uh, um, Ray Ibrahim wrote, Cole presents Muhammad's conquest of an entry into Mecca 
as more resembling, this is quoting Juan Cole, as more resembling the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1963 march on Washington right. than a military campaign. Right. So, I mean, all of these quotes are examples of how he's not really interested in what's going on. He's interested in making Islam look okay to liberals and thereby making anybody who has the nerve, like Ray Ibrahim, of saying things that are harshly critical of Islam, uh, unacceptable. Um, and, and so you end up with, the, I mean, he literally is famous for literally mistranslating what the Iranians say about wanting to wipe Israel off the map in order to undermine anybody who's warning about Iran's desire, open desire to wipe Israel off the map. So, I mean, I think one of the things that you can say about Islamophilia is that it's marked by absurd statements and ridiculous comparisons that are intended to make Islam acceptable to a liberal audience. Yes, right. Let's segue then, speaking of Iran, uh, to a statement by Stephen Zunez, uh, professor and coordinator of the program at Middle East Studies at, at the University of San Francisco. He uh, wrote this in 2019, July 2019, after Iran seized a British oil tanker in the Strait of Hormuz and refused footage, I mean, excuse me, released footage showing it docked in an Iranian port with an Iranian flag hoisted atop it. And he said, Stephen Zunas said, with the increasing military threats from the U.S., this is perhaps the Iranian government's way of saying to the European community, hey, folks, this is serious. You need to help us out, uh, out here or things could get really bad. <laughs> so, you know, basically, again, this is this cognitive egocentrism in which you project onto the Iranians something from your own culture. In this case, sort of, the Iranians are troubled teenagers who are calling out for help mm. by doing what they're doing. And the whole dimension of honor, shame, of humiliating American soldiers, that's so important to the Iranians, is completely lost in this effort to sort of A, involve the Europeans on the side of the Iranians, and B, paint the Americans as the aggressors. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, in the book that I'm about to come out with, I, I coined the term Y2K mind, which is when we, it really kicks in in 2000, uh, the year 2000, which is when jihadis attack a democracy, Blame the democracy. And that's what all these people are doing. They're all making the aggressor the West and making Islam the sort of Lockean, liberal, uh, uh, aggressed, aggrieved entity. Yes, yes. Um, we're a quarter after the hour now. I'm going to take a couple of um, questions from the audience. If you have a question and you're in the audience, please do submit it. Please, please go ahead and do that. Um, one uh, from an anonymous attendee says, isn't much of our and other governments attempt to minimize the Islamic adherence of terror suspects an attempt to avoid turning the war against terrorism into a West versus Islamist Kulturkampf? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the whole, the, the whole ridiculing and, and isolating and, and uh, rendering a pariah of Samuel Huntington which reached its absurd height right in the aftermath of 9-11, which proved his notion of the clash of civilizations, Said wrote a counter in which he heaped contempt on Huntington 
for having the nerve to point this out. Uh, it is a Kulturkampf. It is a war. It is a religious war, and we didn't declare it. They declared it, and they're open about declaring it. And we in the West, you know, look, we come from a society that successfully overcome a great deal of aggression. Um, you know, we, we, we handle anger pretty well. Um, we discourage uh, sort of uh, zero-sum interactions in which I can only win if you lose. Uh, and so on. So, you know, Western civilization, particularly liberal progressive dimensions of it, have done a pretty significant job of fighting this. And now we have an enemy who's declared a religious war on us, and we don't want to believe that we have an enemy. And if we do, it must be our fault. It can't be their fault, because as the questioner puts it, that would mean that we'd have to go to war with a religion, and we don't want to go to a war with the religion. And we're not going to war with religion, I hope. Um, I think what we're doing is going to war with a particular strain of that religion, a very strong one, which I call triumphalist. And I define triumphalist as triumphalist religiosity is the belief that unless your religion is visibly superior to others, you feel insecure about the truth of your religion. So only when your religion dominates, do you feel okay about your religion. And that unfortunately is the case for too many Muslims. Sure. Uh, David Levine asks, isn't the Islamophilia movement by academia a logical next step from the anti-Islamophobia movement of academia of the recent past? Absolutely. They, in fact, they're, they're, they're two sides of the same coin, or what I'd say Islamophilia is the other side of the Islamophilia coin is Islamophobia phobia. And, and in fact, what I would argue is that what we're really dealing with is what I call proleptic dimitude. Um, proleptic is a three syllable word for the more uh, recognizable anticipatory dimitude, which is that these people are behaving like Vimy, subject infidels, in countries governed by Islam. And one of the, 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 the first order of business for all Vimy is do not criticize Islam. And if you want to gain their favor, take their side against their enemies. And so this huge wave of hostility to Israel registers when you look at it from the point of view of proleptic dimitude as basically a form of subjection to islam in which you join islam in attacking what islam feels is its greatest enemy and the definition of that of israel as the greatest enemy is based on the deep-seated need of triumphalists to be visibly superior and an independent state in dar al-islam is just unacceptable. It is, it's, it's an unbearable affront to Muslim honor to have the state of Israel. Uh, <clears throat> very good. Mike Ross um, thanks you for your erudition and your, your candid analysis. And he says, how do you best respond to counter accusations of Islamophobia? How and how did you develop a thick skin to such attacks? <laughs> well, I thank my father for the the thick skin because he would always give me a hard time about anything I said. And I just learned to take criticism. 
And your um, father was a Harvard professor, David Lang. Yes, David yes, and right. So, but I think that the answer is that Islamophobia is a joke. Uh, in other words, Islamophobia is a form of moral panic in which liberals are terrified at the thought that there's a slippery slope between criticizing Islam or making it clear that Muslims are behind so many of the attacks in the West um, because it'll lead people to dislike Islam. And above all, we virtue signaling Westerners don't want it said that we're prejudiced. And while I'm against the prejudice, I think that hostility to various aspects of Islam is not prejudiced at all. It's based on observable empirical evidence that there is something that we should be opposing there. Um, but the, the thing about Islamophobia is, you know, first of all, the, the term was really invented and deployed in the late 1990s and only took off, ironically, after 9-11. And it made absurd claims, like it made a claim that, and I heard this from academics, you know, I, I remember the first time I heard it, my jaw dropped, that Islamophobia is to the early 21st century what anti-Semitism was to the early 20th. In other words, a form of genocidal hatred that could lead to the extermination of millions of people, okay? And the irony of this claim, which is completely off the wall, is that the term Islamophobia as a term of opprobrium that, that literally makes people shake in their boots at the thought that they'll be called that is protecting people who embrace the very worst aspects of Nazi ideology and Nazi anti-Semitism from the early 20th century. So when Angela Merkel lets in a million plus uh, refugees, Muslim refugees, and thinks that she's doing Wiedergutmachen for what the na Nazis did to the Jews, when in fact she's importing Arab variant anti-Semitism that they got from Germany, directly from Germany, you know, that's, that's somewhat insane. And yet the media was behind her. Everybody thought that this was a great and noble thing to do. Sure. Well, let me, um, David Levine again asked the question. He says, didn't Islam begin as a war on Middle East religions at the time of its founding, Judaism, Christianity, and Zoroastrianism? And let me preface your answer to that by uh, quoting, uh, again, one of our favorite scholars, Craig Considine, uh, a lecturer in sociology at Rice University, who has a, a recent book, I say favorite scholar, uh, facetiously, of course, who has a recent book called People of the Book, Prophet Muhammad's Encounter with Christians. And among the um, outrageous statements that Considine uh, makes, it's endless, I could read the book uh, in a webinar and, and illustrate your point today, is this, Christians living under Islamic rule were likely paying the jizya to affirm their allegiance to the Ummah and their commitment to righteousness. Islam's origins in the way a particular American scholar who is not Muslim uh, has, uh, and who makes much of his, the fact that he is a practicing Catholic, in fact, um, interprets that. Right, I mean, it, it could have been written by a Muslim and yet, no, it's written by an outsider who is affirming this point of view. Now, as to the actual question about was this uh, 
originally did it originate as a, a war against uh, the the enemy uh, against Christianity and Judaism and Zoroastrianism. I, I have a chapter in the next book that I'm working on um, on the origins of Islam, and it starts out as an apocalyptic movement in which the Prophet Muhammad is declaring that very soon, imminently. Um, Allah, the one God, will come and judge all of mankind, and you have to get straight with, with God before he comes, um, which is a Christian message, which is a Jewish message, and which possibly also is a Zoroastrian message. And initially, it was a very inclusive religion. It's, uh, um, Muhammad wasn't hostile to Christians and Jews initially. It was over time when his prophecy did not come true that he turned from um, expecting God to come and punish people to taking on the job of punishing the infidel himself. And as Christians and, Muslim, uh, Christians and Jews uh, didn't follow his directions and his teachings, uh, his more specific teachings, he then turned against them. And in that sense, it's very much like what happened to Christianity, which is that it starts out as a Jewish uh, faith, but then when the Jews don't accept the message that Jesus is the only begotten son of Christ and sacrificed on the cross for the sake of mankind and about to come back or will come back, um, the Christians turn on the Jews for, dis for, for, for disappointing them and for, in some senses, symbolically crucifying Jesus. So uh, initially the religion was not like that, but that's one of the characteristics of of millennial movements, apocalyptic movements. I have a book on that called uh, Heaven on Earth. Uh, Don Habibi writes, a debating point I have not yet had occasion to use regarding cancel culture is that Muhammad bought and sold slaves. Other than calling me a name, <clears throat> Islamophobic, what responses would they have? Certainly they won't cancel Muhammad and Islam. It uh, goes to the question of, of dealing with these um, unsavory elements in the history of Islam, some of which are still practiced, and the denial by Western academics, particularly here in, in the U.S., um, that these um, traits exist at all, a very ahistorical right. presentation they give us. Right. Well, I think the initial response would be to say, look, uh, Muhammad freed slaves. He had uh, he adopted some, some children. He, he was what the Arabs call Abu Banat, which is a father of girls. He didn't have any surviving sons. And so his male sons were, in some cases, slaves that he freed. So they would say, oh, well, he freed slaves. Well, he also took slaves and made slaves. And certainly in the history of Islam, there's a terrible uh, history of slave trading. Charles Jacobs has worked on this. Um, and, and what's so striking is that literally it's covered in silence and probably what they would say is you're being an Islamophobe. I mean, there, there's all sorts of stuff now out about the difference between how the, the two incidents in Wisconsin, the, the Rittenhouse and the Daryl, I think, Johnson or Jones um, cases are being handled. And the fact is that there's this radical, uh, what's the word, double standard at work in which, you know, if it's in the, in the case of Wisconsin, a black who's doing it, well, you want to understate that as much as possible. In fact, 
avoid stating it as much as possible, not talk about terrorism. And, um, and then if it's a white, then you jump to the conclusion that it's white racism and supremacism and so on and so forth. And that's just a replay in our American vernacular of what's been going on in the Middle East and the accusation of Israelis. Uh, this isn't exactly on the question, but I was struck by the fact that a lot of people were, were offended when uh, CNN referred to people having been driven over, but that, that an that a SUV ran them over. Well, in Israel, we're used to those kinds of headlines. It's, you know, rocks, rocks kill um, Israeli driver. Uh, it's never a Palestinian or uh, Israelis kill Palestinian after. And then you mention in the side what the Palestinian did. So there's this, this you know, there's this deep double standard that is very hard for them to deal with. And my advice to you would be stick with it. Learn about there's a book by Bernard Lewis on slavery and Islam. Learn about it. They, they were ferocious slave traders. And they didn't just discriminate against the 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 African blacks. They they, yeah. they they traded white slaves and so on. So it's a it's quite a story. Uh, very good. And uh, let's uh, end our time. We're almost out of time now. Um, with a question by Ada Tiber, who says, "Are we losing the war against Islam?" <laughs> well, look. That's my book is called "All's Unquiet on the Western Front." Lethal journalism, anti-Semitism, and the global caliphate in the 21st century. Um, and what I'm saying is, you know, look, I'm not going to say it's too late, but I am going to—I am saying that we have waited an unconscionably long time to fight back. That it is ridiculous and absurd. The original—the original theme of the book was: if I were a Muslim. I would consider the stupidity of Westerners as a sign from Allah that I should join jihad. We have been staggeringly stupid in our dealing with Islam. We've been driven by this moral phobia, moral panic that you know we might be prejudiced and that we might be you know, unfair to Muslims. We should be careful not to be unfair to Muslims, but it's ridiculous to do what these Islamophiles that we've been discussing have been doing and getting away with and dominating. So now we have MESA, Middle East Studies Association, about to, to take a, a, a resolution in favor of BDS, which is essentially, again, proleptic dimitude. They're behaving like good dimi and attacking the enemy of the triumphalist Muslims, sure. which is sure. pathetic. That's That's... That's our Middle Eastern scholars. Yes, yeah, that's not scholarship. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's, not that's just pure politics. Well, Richard Landis, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating discussion. We really appreciate this. It's, uh, I think our audience has benefited tremendously from it. I hope so. And uh, for our audience, please be on the lookout for future emails announcing even more webinars to come. Uh, with that, we will end. Thank you all for well, joining. Wait, let me ask you a question. Yes. Is there a way for me to get all of these questions so I can look at them? Because I see there are. I will. Uh, yes, I will, I will. We will do that. We will do that. We're starting okay, to go good. Okay. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so much now. Thank you, Richard.